Welcome to another great edition of the Bighorn Podcast. We are honored to continue to present interesting people and their extraordinary stories from the Bighorn community. We want to highlight the twists and turns and ups and downs that makes every story unique in its own way. We are constantly amazed that the stories you have shared educates and entertains our listeners in a way we could not have imagined. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years. Their dedication to excellence is unparalleled in fine jewelry, and their involvement in our community has and continues to be unprecedented in the Coachella Valley. Bighorn Properties, who continues to support in a major way the Bighorn Golf Club to make this wonderful place better in every way. Also, Bighorn Properties continues to represent you with 30 years of experience and a dedication to representing both buyers and sellers in a way that cannot be duplicated. Back Nine Greens, who continues to grow worldwide with the best reputation in the industry and with the leadership of Dominic Nappi, a member of our Bighorn community who never forgets their strong roots in the Coachella Valley. Corliss Estate Wine, whose dedication to old world techniques with new world fruits sets them apart. We appreciate their support for the Bighorn Podcast, and we encourage you to support them. Our guest is Debbie Frost, a new member of Bighorn, with an amazing story that she will share with us. Welcome to Debbie, and start us on your journey that starts in Hong Kong. Thank you for having me. Casting my mind back to Hong Kong feels like forever ago, but it really was such a special place. I was born there in the early 70s. It's not name a date. And it was a British colony. So growing up in that kind of environment, you are, you're in the minority. You're getting used to, it's the only culture I ever knew. But coming to America, you reflect back on it and you think, gosh, that was a really different kind of experience to grow up like that. But I grew up in this sort of British education system. My father was British, so that worked out nicely. And my mother was Australian, and they met there. My dad had been this guy who'd sort of had this dream that he was going to go off and join the Foreign Legion, an adventurer, leave England and travel miles away. So he joined the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, and he taught himself Cantonese. And he worked his way up from a walk-the-beat cop all the way up until he was running, you know, large parts of the organization, including a part called the Marine Police. The Marine Police is super interesting because in the late 60s and early 70s, of course, there was a lot of refugee immigration from Vietnam. People would be crossing over into Hong Kong waters in literally inflatable boats in jackets filled with balloons for inflation. My father would go and fish these people out of the ocean. I grew up with this sort of environment where my dad had this very hectic job and uh, hard to understand. I didn't see very much of him. My mum died when I was really, really young. I grew up with domestic help and this very busy dad in this really crazy place. And I think that's probably given me a lot of intestinal fortitude for today. How aware were you at that young age? Because this is a very different upbringing. How were you aware or did you just accept, and when you're young you just do, Just accept your surroundings, and this is the way life is. Of course, losing your mom is traumatic 
especially when you're a young person. How did that impact you then? And as you look back on it, what impact has it had on your life? You know, I think there's been some really, I mean, obviously it's a devastating thing, but I was so young. I was two. And so I don't have any real memories of her. For anyone who's lost a parent, you could argue that the memories are the bit that you get to enjoy after they're gone. I don't have any of those. But at the same time, I don't feel tortured by them. And I didn't feel tortured by them growing up. It was just, I didn't have one. Everyone else had a mum, but I didn't. But I was very well looked after in the in the community. I felt there were lots of other families that were also there as expatriates or or other folks who'd come to, you know, have their journey in Hong Kong. And we were sort of a small community in a way. So I did feel that love. Feels a little bit like here in a way. You know, you sort of grow up knowing that you've got one parent who's trying to make it work. And He's a dad. And actually, you know, it's hard for dads. So he did his absolute best. One of the best things he did was, I think he knew that my mother would always want me to be connected to my Australian family. And so every two and a half years, I would go and live for six months in Australia with my Australian family. So I'm very connected to them. And I feel much more Australian than I do English, because I didn't actually go to England until I was eight. And so I, I spent a lot of time Hong Kong and Australia in my youth. Um, and that I think was very, that really shaped me. I think that was very shaping. And I got to experience two very different cultures. You mentioned your dad. He didn't have a manual about how to do this. As a parent, we want to do the best we possibly can, but we don't have all the tools to make that happen. You were never a victim with your upbringing, but what were the challenges for you as you went through school and things like that? It's funny, reflecting on it, I don't really feel much of a challenge other than this one thing. My father was very driven. He'd come from sort of nothing and wanted to make something of himself and compete with his siblings, like most people. He told me I could do anything. He never said, you can't be a doctor or a lawyer. In fact, his expectation was that I would be. And I think one of the hardest things that parents do, and this is especially true when they've got girls, is that they just sort of hope for them to get married or or to find love. And they maybe don't focus as much on their careers. But my dad was, you know, he just sort of never gave me any feeling that there was some glass ceiling or something I couldn't do because I was a woman or a girl. He just wanted me to do whatever I wanted and reach for the absolute top. And I don't know whether that was by design or because maybe he did have a secret manual, but it was definitely something that was incredibly formative for me because I didn't, when I then went uh, when I finished my education in Hong Kong and went to university law school in England, didn't had never occurred to me that I couldn't, you know, be the best of the best and have a, a big career, because he'd never he'd never told me otherwise. An only child. Yeah, uh, I have a my father had a, a son from his first marriage, so I have a half brother with whom I'm now quite close. There it must have been very freeing, not to have limitations. Sometimes not even conscious in your life. You just did feel that you could accomplish whatever it is that you wanted to accomplish as long as you had a good work ethic, which was but a big part of what your dad gave you. Absolutely. He just made me feel like if I worked hard 
I would achieve. And I think that's it's quite hard to instill in children in a way that's not not too much pressure. I did feel some pressure. You know, I did feel the freedom of being able to pursue passions, but also that it was an expectation because that's what he wanted and he expected. And it didn't really feel as much pressure as like, imagine what you could have or be or where you could travel or how many people you could help. He was very much that kind of person. Well, and you mentioned before, Debbie, that something that's missing now in the cultures around the world is that sense of community. Mm. Because when you grow up with a sense of community, everybody helps everybody else in it. And it's really a positive, a more positive situation rather than Mm -hmm. going against people. And secondly, what's similar in all these podcasts is if you work hard, you can accomplish pretty much whatever it is that you want to do. That's that's what I've been hearing on your podcast. And I definitely think that's something that I've noticed about this community. You know, everyone here has a story. They've built something, they've run something, they've been part of something, they've given, you know, an enormous, you know, an enormous part of their time and, um, and wealth to charity, and they have huge philanthropic efforts. And so, there's always, there's always, you know, everyone's so busy doing, and that's a really motivating place to be. Well, it's very entrepreneurial. When you're, now you're going to law school, did you have at that age a master plan of some sort? This is what I want to accomplish. This is where I want to go. Well, when you go to law school, I think that that's sort of, that feels like that's the path, like you're going to be a lawyer. It's in the title. Um, and so my father had felt like he, my brother's a doctor. He was very excited about the idea of having a doctor and a lawyer as his children. So imagine his surprise when I said, hmm, I don't think this is for me. I had spent, obviously spent a long time studying law and I traded in the, you know, the court of law for the court of public opinion. I wanted to pursue a career in public policy, communications, public affairs. So, you know, law adjacent, not what he had (laughs) hoped. So I think for a while, I think for several years, he just said I was a lawyer because he couldn't figure out what I did for a living. He got used to it after a while. And I sort of embarked on this crazy journey through a communications field, which was not anything I had experienced or expected, but just charted my path through that. And there was nobody that you that mentored you at that time? This was a decision you made? Or mm. how did this come about, this change of path? After I finished studies, I joined um, a large PR firm that specialized in crisis management. And so every client we had was going through something pretty awful. We were managing the sort of public fallout of that. And they were sort of managing the business fallout of that. They had lots of lawyers in the room. And I thought, you know, having sort of seen that through internships and then noticed it sort of from the other side. So law firms and PR firms managing these crises worked hand in hand. I just fancied the other side more. So I applied to this firm and went off and worked with all these clients who were going through crises. And I joke because my turning point was really working for a company called Unilever, 
big client, owned a lot of businesses in fast-moving consumer goods and frozen foods. They sold their frozen foods business in 2006 for like several billion dollars, but I worked on it in its infancy in Europe. And at that time in the 90s, the European Union was coalescing around a whole load of new labeling laws. And I know this sounds really boring. It was my turning point because I worked on fish fingers. And I think you call them fish sticks? Fish sticks. Fish sticks. Everyone has had fish sticks. I can never look at one and I'll tell you why. So I used to go around the factories, take journalists and food writers and all of these people around to sort of understand how these things were made and how they contributed to the business and all this kind of stuff. And sort of super you know, grunt work type of thing. But when this labeling law happened, it became a really big inflection point for Unilever because, believe it or not, fish sticks are not actually made of entirely fish. So they had to change their packaging and nobody wants to read that there's like eyeballs and bones on the box. So they... I got involved in this huge project to try and help them figure out how to repackage, rename and rebrand their fish sticks in a way that could allow them to continue on their, you know, upward trajectory of sales. And that's when I realized that what I was doing wasn't just writing press releases and showing people around factories. I was really doing an MBA. I was learning a every single part of this business from how, you know, soup to nuts, literally. And that made me super competent at being able to explain to external audiences what was going on and what the intention of the company was and what its product looked like. And I thought, I'm good at this. This is what I should do. And so I worked for a bunch of other companies as well. And then one of those companies was Nike. They were going through a lot of issues in the 90s around child labor and apparel manufacturing in Southeast Asia. So I got involved in that. And that's when they hired me full time and my career inside companies started. And that was, I guess, a good moment for me to explain to my father. Once I landed at a company he'd heard of, he could cope. (laughs) And going into these companies, tell us about the process do you focus groups, you do investigation, you do, what do you do in order to give them a more appropriate message for their success? You know, the biggest thing that I did was listen to the outside world. And you mentioned focus groups, and that's certainly one way. And I think what happens in a lot of companies is that they become very internally focused. And that's certainly true when you're going through a crisis. There's a real feeling that you need to sort of batten down the hatches and brace yourself for the onslaught. And the most important thing for you to do at that moment actually is to open your eyes and listen to your critics because they will point out the areas of weakness before you find them. So that was kind of how we started, how I started. And um, and I worked in, uh, I worked in, Nike in uh, UK and then in Europe. And then I I worked on fun stuff too. It wasn't always about how much tributyl tin one might ingest if one chewed a football shirt for six hours. But there was that kind of stuff too. That certainly is a brand that we're all familiar with. And they've gone through a lot of changes within their company over the years, continue to be wildly successful, but I'm sure continue to have to be, are you still involved with them in any way because they still have challenges for themselves each and every day and big companies always do this is it's never over never over no I'm not involved with them I left Europe because I got married to my ex-husband and he had a job in San Francisco and so I gave up my Nike job which I thought was like 
the best job I was ever going to have in my life. I was still in my early 20s, well, late 20s, I think, by that point. And I just moved to America. I had all these skills, I thought, about helping companies. And I thought they would be, you know, in especially in the apparel business and, um, and in retail. And I thought, this is going to be super transferable. But I land in San Francisco, and it's like 2001. The economy is no bueno. I thought, oh, I'm going to try and get a job at like Gap or Levi's, big companies that are based in San Francisco that have similar issues and perhaps present similar opportunities. And I just couldn't get a job. There was just, there was a lot of layoffs. The economy was very tight. I didn't have any US experience. And so I had to really think about how to translate my own experience into something that would be marketable to American companies. My approach was to think of it as, I now say, make a bug a feature Because I was not from America, I could help American companies who were looking to expand outside. And so I really, I really went for that angle. Still didn't get a job. Um, But eventually I managed to get a job at a startup, the small startup that was doing quite well in America, but was, hadn't really expanded and didn't have very much of an international footprint. And they offered me a job as I was driving out of parking lot. Wow, they're really keen. And that company was Google. This is about the twists and turns that happen to our lives when we least expect them. Yeah. And I mean, and then I'm calling my dad and I'm like, he's like, it's a search engine. Yes. I was like, oh no, here we go again. Um, hopefully this will be all right. I was like, dad, I have a job. I mean, we should just be really happy. Yes. Try explaining that one. Imagine the lecture on the cost of law school that ensue. I mean, he did have to eat his words. Well, yeah. yeah. At the time, did he buy stock? <laughs> he didn't understand any of it. But it was, you know, I joined this company. It was, t- you know, there were a few hundred people. We would call journalists and tell them about our company. And they would be like, search is dead. It's solved. It's a, it's a solved issue in tech. There are other things that are more exciting. And so it was a real grind. It was actually really hard to get people to pay attention to this company that's now on every front page of every major newspaper worldwide. Again, we're prisoners of the moment. So Mm. we look at Google now and we say, of course, it was always going to be successful. But the fact is, nobody knew at the time. But what is the energy in a room, in that room at Google, when you're in a startup? Because we on the outside are saying, well, boy, it must have been really exciting. But it's a matter of survival, too, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, we had no budget. I remember going in the very early days to try and do this sort of international expansion thing. And I went with Larry and Sergey, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, to Italy. And we, you know, they flew business class and I flew in economy. And it sounds really silly, but we just had, we had to keep the money down. We couldn't spend much money. We flew over, you land in Italy in the morning. So we couldn't get into our hotel rooms until to change and shower and everything until the afternoon. So we had had the foresight to book one hotel room and we just took it in turns to sort of get changed and showered so that I could take them on a round of interviews with, you know, Corriella della Sera and all of these other, you know, all of these other newspapers. And I, you know, when you think now that they have, you know, they have a plane and maybe two planes and all of this sort of stuff at the time, we were just like, we can't spend any money because we just don't know if we're going to make it. We don't know. We often talk about those times, though, as being the most exciting of times. Because 
Iowa always believed that putting something together is really when the juices get going and you really feel you're energized all the time. You're tired, but you're energized. You didn't realize where it was going to go, but did you realize that you were a part of something that could really be special? Special. Absolutely. Yeah. When you join a company like that, and I've joined two, it's a very mission-driven company. You really are thinking about what impact you're going to have on the world and what impact you want to have. And for Larry and Sergey and everyone who joined Google, especially in those early days, we just really, I guess we all felt, I know I felt, this really strong desire and belief that if we did organize information for people, their lives would be better. I think that's true for anyone who literally goes on the internet today. We had this vision for what it could look like if the if everything that was out there was just easier to find and easier to access and easier to use and that the benefit to everybody's lives would be really profound. And so when you're in those rooms, you know, you're thinking about all sorts of tactical things, but really you're thinking like, we got to make this work. This is going to be really good for people. Imagine what you could achieve. Imagine if you could give this kind of, harness this kind of tool for education for people in developing worlds. I mean, imagine if we all had access to the same stuff just through one little place, how democratizing that would be to make all of that so accessible. Imagine how much more people would read or see or how much more of the world they could they could see through access to different imagery. And I don't know, as we were going along this journey, it felt like we were really pursuing something massive. And you just got to get down and do it, whatever it took. And I can imagine that. But part of this process that people don't clearly understand, it's one thing to develop all this, the technical aspect. But for you to message what this is, is really the challenge. Because if people don't understand the benefits, all the great technology in the world gets lost. And there's cynicism and there's all those sorts of things. Talk to me about how you sold, or maybe that's not the right term, but that you informed people in a way that got them excited and got them on board. I think there were two sides of that because of the type of work I did. So internationally, we were set, you know, we were thinking about how to tell the story of search and hear all of the products and the types of things that you could do. And it, and it is quite boring. No, one, no, you don't pick up a newspaper and read a story about like how to use the internet. And you certainly didn't even do that in 2002. And so what we were trying to do was to build awareness and all of those kinds of things, um, but also to plan for the inevitable, I guess, the risks associated with building something like this what if it's what if it's not used well or what if it's not used in a good way or what if people don't understand or you know what if there's bad imagery and you've now spread made this you know super easy for young people to 
you know, to see something they shouldn't. So we, we were both trying to promote the company and also build the foundation for being a good company and a good product. That sounds less exciting, but that's what I really find exciting. So we were spending a lot of time doing both of those things. But I do have a funny story because we did have our challenges. But look, Google was really innovative. So there was always something to talk about. And so a lot of this was just about telling as many people as possible and building their understanding quickly. So you have to be really sharp. We were launching sometimes three or four products in a day. The volume and intensity of being able to do that at that scale is just unprecedented. You are on a rocket ship. But I do remember having a funny conversation with the editor of the London Times on uh, March 31st or 30th, because we were launching Gmail and we launched Gmail on April Fool's Day. And he said to me, he said, you, this better not be a bloody joke. Because I'm going to put this on my front page. And I just, I was like, it's not a joke. And it's one of those things where you just think, okay, well, look, I'm talking to the biggest guy in the business and I'm going to get a front page story and everybody's going to use this product. And that's what I want. But I've really made it hard for myself. <laughs> but Larry and Sergey, this is the thing about some founder, founder-led and founder-driven companies. They thought it would be really funny to launch it on April 1st. And so that's what we did. But it was incredibly challenging. Yeah, I would. Credibility could be an issue. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a tough one. But you bring up something else because we're talking about 2002. Yeah. Here. Well, G- Gmail was 2004. Yeah. Okay. In the scope of the world, that's still yesterday. <laughs> I mean, that's not all that long ago. In the early 1900s, things happened maybe every five years, if you were lucky, probably more like 10 years, every generation. Now things are happening hourly to keep up with that and continue to get the information out in a timely way. That has to be a real challenge because things are changing so rapidly. Yes. And sometimes engineers or people in the company would do things and not tell you because the goal wasn't communication. The goal was build the company and build this product. It's a very, I talk about the company, but really these companies, companies like Google are incredibly focused on the product, on the thing that they've built, not on telling the story about how they operationalized it. They're like, here's the thing we've built that you can use and here's how to use it. And here's all the benefits that it has. They're not focused on any of the back end. Larry and Sergey could care less and much to my annoyance about communicating how profitable or how how great the business was or the kinds of teams we might have hired to like increase our revenue or recruit great people. They were very, very focused on on this piece and expanding it internationally. But yes, the pace is insane. And that's it's one of those things about tech that I've always loved because the expectation is that you're just going to you have to have this real flexibility, this real agility, both of in your mind and your and and in your skill to move from one thing to another, but also to be able to see the whole field. Because as communicators, when you're looking out at all of your external audiences, 
they they all think different things. A lot of the time they think the same thing, but there's a lot of different opinion and trying to absorb that and bring that back into the company so that we could make improvements and we could listen to our audiences just became like super overwhelming. I'm probably going round and around in circles because I'm now having like my ulcers are flaring. And I think about all those times, we just worked all the time. And I know that's true of a lot of people entrepreneurs, when you're building something like that, no one was a morning person. So we would start around 10, but everybody would be online and, you know, working till at least midnight. Sometimes we'd be on conference calls, 10, 11 o'clock, because you're sort of both at the whim of your founder found and a lot of people in tech work late. It's just, I don't know how that, how that happened, but there's just no morning people in tech. That's when you got work done. And so if you went to bed early, you weren't in the room and that was a problem and you wanted to be in the room and most of the time you were needed in the room. I certainly got very used to living with my phone next to my bed and, you know, being awake at all hours. I mean, I think the real skill I've developed, Marty, honestly, is the ability to take micro naps. So I can like take a seven minute nap and feel great <laughs> because sometimes we would lie down in the conference room and just take, take a minute and then get back to it. You need to explain that to all of us because we could all use a little bit of that, I think. But especially at the pace you were working, which brings up another question. This is very exciting. But what impact does it have on the rest of your life when you're involved in something like this? Yeah, there isn't much life you really have to dedicate yourself to these things. That's, I'm sure every entrepreneur, many that you've interviewed and the many listening, it's something you have to really, you end up knowing that you knowingly put aside a lot of other things in order to pursue this dream vision. And I did that and I worked really diligently and really hard and part of it was because I knew that this was going to be good. This was going to, I just felt that this was going to be like a really important thing to have been part of. And I wanted everyone to have it. And I thought that if my, if I did that, this legacy of having, you know, built something good for the world would just be really fulfilling and worth it. It's also very short termist. I mean, the reason that they give you four-year stock deals is because they presume you're probably going to leave after about four years. And tech can be quite transient in that regard. A lot of people will vest and then peace out or go to the next company. I knew that I had to do this for a short period of time, short, intensive period of time. And it just felt like the right trade-off. I'm laughing because a little bit because I did get divorced during that time, but I don't think it was necessarily related. I think successful people, they don't know anything other than 110%, because that's in our minds, and I believe in the reality, that's the only way to truly be successful. For other people to buy into that in our lives is a difficult situation. Now, I don't ever think it's that one thing that causes the termination of any relationship, but it, it has to be a, a factor. Also, I was super successful. I'm not really sure my ex-husband could handle that. Well, that's another factor for absolutely sure. How is it, and this will be something I'm going to ask you a couple of times, knowing some of your background, you're a woman in this situation. How is that impact what's going on for you too, because do you have a seat at the table? 
Obviously you do, but are you accepted or is it just always an uphill battle? I'm glad you asked that question because it was always a little bit of both. Tech was, tech still is, a little bit more diverse as an industry, both from a gender diversity and other other types of diversity kind of industry than lots of others. There were other women in the room and there were on the board at the highest level, but it is mostly men. I felt that, and perhaps this is to thank my father for, is that I never really felt like, I didn't necessarily feel like I couldn't be in the room because of my gender, but I did notice it. I did notice I was one of a few. But one of the other women in the room was a woman called Cheryl Sandberg, who's a good friend who has obviously later gone on to write a book about women in leadership. I did notice that there was a lot of decision-making by men and I didn't ever feel marginalized at all. I felt very welcomed, but I did notice that there weren't many of us. That was the start of a sort of separate parallel journey for me on thinking about how, as someone who'd broken through, how do I help the women that come behind me also feel like they could have a seat at the table, that they could raise their hands, that they could voice their ideas and be in that room, despite, you know, regardless of their, you know, their gender, but because of their talent and their point of view. And that was something I still do today with Cheryl. And absolutely, I think that that's an ongoing, it should be ongoing, that sort of mentoring for sure. Now you're at Google, is it just overnight this starts to be successful? And how are you feeling now that this is all moving forward? Well, it all did happen quite quickly. Um, I was only there for four years, during which we went from being very, very small to being super successful. We took the company public. And then we were sort of in a mode where we were doing some things to expand the company that were really hard. One of the last things I worked on before I left was on getting Google into China, which was very diff- was just very, very difficult because of all of the laws regarding access to information. Well, I say laws because no one in China, there's no written law. No one knows what you can and can't do. But as you know, there's, it's a massive culture of censorship. We were a company who wanted to give access to information. And those two things, super orthogonal. But we did manage to launch a version of Google in China that excluded a number of things that the Communist Party would not have wanted um, us to share with the Chinese people. That was super controversial worldwide. It was massive. And so we spent months trying to explain our rationale, this idea that 99% of information is better than none. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, because this was a beloved company. We built the reputation of Google it was a gift. It was free. I got free email, all these gigabytes. I have so much storage. Everything we'd given to the world through our products that up until that point had been brilliant, beneficial, controversially free. And then all of a sudden we take our company, our fluffy, you know, nice US company into a censorship conversation. And that was really, really difficult. Google's no longer in China. And with everything that's going on today, as you look back on this, was it a mistake to go into China to begin with? What lessons were learned from that? And how do they apply to what's going on today with 
censorship and or Chinese companies that have gotten into um, these various vehicles. Gosh, we could spend an entire hour just talking about that. Here's what I learned. I learned that it was actually a Chinese government official said to me one time, he said, it's like a tree. China's like a big tree, with all these leaves and deep roots and it's old and stands the test of time. He said, we can't have a rotten branch. If we have a rotten branch, we have to cut it off. And I just thought, like I was going to vomit. It was the most clear understanding I've ever had from a, someone in a position of power that they were willing to sacrifice quite a lot in order to maintain stability. This was all about maintaining stability and power. You can see that obviously China haven't let in a lot. There's, they haven't let Facebook and a lot of other like con, you know companies into into China f- because they're probably you know quote unquote rotten branches. You know I learned that along the way, uh, both doing this at Google and then later at Facebook. But it's what is so fascinating, and I think shines a really big light on some of the commentary today around TikTok and other companies that are. Um, that do have troves and troves of information on people from around the world is that the Chinese government, from my experience, have access to whatever they want. They don't tell you what you have to do. There's no plan for here are the five steps to giving us access to information. They will make it up as they go along. If they want it, they'll go get it. And we would have at Google real pressure from authorities, this is in Google China, real pressure from authorities all the time coming to the office that just threatened employees and felt and just felt completely wrong and was like the wrong thing to do. And as Google publicly said years later, it was unsustainable. And so they pulled out. And so that's the operation that I experienced. So today, when I look at the testimony of TikTok founders and things like that saying, no, 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 we've got servers in Singapore and we've blocked this off and we'll do this, I just laugh because I think that might be the plan today, but that could easily change because you're not in control. There's too much desire for stability and power for you to have any of that control. And so you might be able to make promises today, but they won't be ones that you can keep. That was my experience. So what I'm hearing is there's no trust between the Chinese, for, for us to have any trust with the Chinese government, that they're either going to do what they say they're going to do or live up to the promises that they might make today. Well, look, I had a limited and a sort of myopic experience through these companies, but that my experience was that there was a the desire for stability and economic success and keeping the Chinese people fed and happy was something that was going to be the most important thing. And you can argue that that's probably a great thing. But I think the way that that cast a shadow on technology was that they were, you know, they weren't willing to compromise on very much. For Google, that made operating in China impossible. It was also impossible for me at Facebook because they just said no. They were like, no, you just can't come here. At this point, how long have you been with Google? You said it was a, a so this four was year. This was in 2006. And what prompts you to leave Google and move on to your next journey? Part exhaustion and part twinkle in the eye. 
I was very, very tired. I'd been there, you know, four and a half years. I had been working on getting us into China and I just needed to rest. I was actually starting to think a little bit more about the other side of the internet. So where Google is all about information, you know, something that I as an individual can get access to, the whole undeveloped side of the web was the social web was how people get access to each other. And I thought that was really interesting and underdeveloped. There was a company called MySpace that was doing quite well and Friendster. And Google had a product called Orkut. Um, And they all connected people to each other. And it just felt like that was a really interesting part of the internet. And so I left. And shortly after, Sheryl Sandberg also left. She went to join a company called Facebook. Again, a very small company at the time, a few hundred people. She called me and she said, you should really come here. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this again. She said, no, it'll be fun. It'll be great. And I'm here and we'll have fun. So I did. When Cheryl calls you, you pretty much make up your mind on the spot. Oh, I, have, I would think so. The track <laughs> there is record, no no. The track record would suggest. You come over to Facebook. You say that people don't last much more than four years. But is there something about the rush of starting something new so attractive sometimes that you say, I'm exhausted, but that'd be fun to do again, especially with the right people. Oh, you are absolutely right. The adrenaline gets going and you're like, gosh, what if we can do this again? This is going to be, this is going to be big. We can make this big. Through all of the exhaustion and like I generalize, some people, I think early stage employees, early to mid stage, which was me, they tend to last a short time. When people join later, they tend to last a longer time because the company's more established. They've established their benefits. It's much more, you know, there are bigger teams, much more manageable. But in the early days, you're just like scrapping around. There tends to be a lock-in period uh, that coincides with people's like ability to cope. So yeah, off I go to this company that was run by a teenager. I thought this is going to be wild. They've hired Cheryl. And so he's obviously smart. We've got to go and build this thing from scratch. And at the time, MySpace was had many more users and, and was the talk of the town. We were just trying to win. Any entrepreneur will tell you, like, as you know, winning is pretty fun. Off we went trying to build, tell the story. But it was already a very controversial company when I joined The issues around data privacy and security and safety were just massive, massive things and much larger issues than they were at a search engine. And the real world harm that can be created through these things was, you know, much more pronounced. I knew I had my work cut out for me, but I like a challenge. So I was there 11 years. I didn't burn out too quickly, but I think you learn a lot of lessons, as you said, even though you're trying to be scrappy and lean and build something. I definitely had some more operational skill at building a startup and building the communicate, a communications operation. So I was able to do that much faster and more efficiently at Facebook. We were able to do that across, across the globe, just much more quickly than before. We're now from fish books to Facebook. You've learned an awful lot during that time. So you're better at what you do. Your reputation is, has increased exponentially. You were happy to go with your friend, Cheryl. When you first met Mr. Zuckerberg, what were your initial impressions? 
When I first met Mark, Cheryl had brought me in and I hadn't been hired and he was sort of in the office and I mean, he looked like he was 12. So there was that. I was like, oh my gosh, he's so young. But he was just incredibly open. Working with Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google, I mean, they were PhD students. So they had, they'd actually been quite studied and they were a bit older as founders than Mark was. And Mark was just absorbing everything, listening to advice, meeting people, being really open, but he was incredibly shy. He still is incredibly shy. My first impression meeting him was, I just felt myself being really mindful of the fact that my personality overwhelmed this child. And yet this was somebody who was going to go on, I knew that he was going to go on to build something like incredible, controversial, but incredible. Though we didn't necessarily see that at the time. You know, he was just really lovely. He is actually really lovely. We've read the book, seen the movie. Again, you're building something that is really exciting, can be huge, has become huge. What were the pitfalls that you looked at even then as possibilities? But here's one that I think will resonate. When Mark first made Facebook, and this was obviously prior to my joining, it was the way you navigated it was that you would it was a bit like search. You would look for a person and you would go to their page. And that was true of how MySpace and Friendster and a lot of the other social media companies at the time, 2008, how they all worked. That's how you navigated around. There was no feed. There was no, you didn't go to Facebook and see what you see today. We launched that and people hated it, hated it. They, there were 10,000 people in a Facebook group called Bring Back Old Facebook. There were protests outside our office. People came to University Avenue in Palo Alto and sat outside our little startup office saying, bring back old Facebook. People were mad as hell. But now if you look at your phone, I dare you, name one service, one app that you have that does not include a feed So we changed the way people looked at stuff. And again, this was on a desktop because people hadn't really made the switch to mobile. We weren't all walking around with NASA bite-sized computers in our pockets in 2008. People were still using Blackberries and things like that. sort of rudimentary. That decision really shaped the rest of the internet. And it certainly shaped Facebook because now you don't navigate around to to see what people think you just get fed it. And that's why they called it newsfeed. And generally people, people adopted it, but Mark was resolute. He was like, no, this is going to be how it's going to go. This is the way it's going to look in the future. This is how people should receive information. Shouldn't have to navigate to like all these people. This is going to make it easier. And so he was steadfast, even though a lot of us in the company were a bit like, well, gosh, should we switch it back? You know, should we maybe have a period of experimentation, a beta test, something? He was like, nope, switch it on. And it was rocky for a while. We thought we were going to lose. It turned out that people quite like feeds. You thought that Google was challenging when you first started. This sounds to me, especially now we're talking specifically about you and what you do, Mm -hmm. the messaging of this product. 
Mm -hmm. You talk about long hours before. I can only imagine what was going on at this time of Facebook for you. It was definitely a lot of long hours, but it is really a labor of love. Like I just thought I really love this product. For me, with all of my family all across the world, I suddenly had an app or a way of keeping up with their lives that I never had before. And people loved it. And people love posting photos and they love sharing their lives and their thoughts and their opinions and their videos. And you just got a window into everyone's world that, that you know, that thousands of miles had kept from you. So I really saw a personal advantage to it. But also this idea that I thought in the future, this will bring people a better understanding of each other. I really felt like, and do still feel, the thing about Facebook and all its related products and services and everything that, you know, is alongside it, you know, ultimately, what, you know, through the good and the bad, I think the good outweighs the bad, because really, I think that the ability to connect with people of all different types and of all different opinions in any different place is the bit that's the most interesting and profound. What we saw watching Facebook grow, we went through the whole Arab Spring. People were like, this great service is going to help people coalesce around opinion, bring change to governments. And everyone was like, yes, that sounds awesome. And then a few short years later, there were some challenges that no one could have expected. There were even at the time. I mean, I remember remarking to some friends early on after a particularly long week that I had had, who who would have thought that Mexican drug cartels would post beheading videos on Facebook? Who knew we needed a policy for that? No beheadings. I tell you what, let's go with no beheadings. So we had to build out our, our policy and approach on controversial content and gore because of this thing. I just couldn't even have imagined that that would have been something I would have had to do, but we did it. As we grew and billions of people are using this service, they were using it in ways that we hadn't necessarily expected. So you're sort of building the plane as you're flying. It's just incredibly hard to do. And you do make a lot of mistakes. I spent 11 years there trying to talk openly about the things that were going on, the outside effects on Facebook, the things we were trying to do internally. One of the things I think that was very different about those two companies is that for some reason, I can't quite put my finger on. People love Google. They loved it. They never really did with Facebook. We were always a little bit on trial. Like, will you do a good thing? And I don't know whether that's because with Facebook, it's so personal. It's about your own information. It's about who you are. It's your identity. It's your stuff out there online. And you want to have much more control of it. Whereas with Google, it's about stuff you read. It's about other people's stuff um, and you getting access to it. And I wonder if that meant, I guess that's my hypothesis, that meant that the standard was just much, much higher. And so that created more ulcers and a lot more challenges. No one ever conceived the enormity of these things. Facebook. Doesn't that just scare people in itself? That something becomes so big that they don't trust it or they are scared of it or the power that they may have. And then on top of that, it gets politicized. 
that's got to be a very difficult. I mean, first of all, 11 years is a long time to spend in a pressure cooker like this, I would think. But you couldn't foresee this. But isn't that part of also the problem? Now, the problem, not that the company's bad, necessarily, one way or the other. But just that size scares people. It absolutely scares people. I don't know whether it's necessarily the size, because I think when we go to Facebook or Instagram or wherever you go, you're not thinking, gosh, there's 2 billion people on this. It's not the size of that. It's why am I seeing this? Why is this in my feed? And the decision of the algorithm and the technology behind what you see is the bit that people argue about. We knew that from the beginning, that that would always be challenging. I think the approach was always to try and help. I mean, it's a very complicated thing, but really the idea and the goal was to help people see things and connect to content and people that they really liked, that was part of them and what they wanted. And you get a lot of signal for that. And so the idea was that that would work and you would open up your Facebook and your feed would be full of some friends of yours who just got married, your sister's birthday, someone's new baby. You would feel this closeness to your friends and family. But the thing is, your friends and family have opinions and they're connected to other things. And, you know, your crazy uncle John went to a, you know, a controversial thing and decided to post some like weird pictures. And all of a sudden your feed is like slightly different. And it's very hard for any one company to continue to keep up with the volume of stuff and people's interests and all the types of content. And as a good example, it's like, it was very hard to reflect back on elections, particularly around the time when uh, Facebook was being highly criticized over Russian interference. I don't know if even our government couldn't predict that that was the tool that Russians might use. They thought maybe, but they don't really know how. And I think that it's very hard for any company, let alone, and if it's hard for a government, it's let alone a company to kind of identify these areas of weakness before they crop up. The best thing you can do is to figure out the holes, patch them up and not let them happen again. You know, I think we got pretty good at that. But unfortunately, when you've got this giant thing and everyone's using it and there's all these new things that crop up, like beheading videos, you're dealing with unexpected ways that people use technology and trying to figure out what the right balance is for the world. And it's hard. It's just really hard. Now, 11 years at Facebook. What is Debbie up to after that? During my time at Facebook, I married Mike Maisel in uh, 2014. How did you meet? We actually met at Google. Really? We did. We met at Google. Mike would tell the story in a much more interesting way, but we were both married to other people and we were really good friends and we would carpool together and we would hang out as a group with our respective spouses. So we were just always friends. And then our marriages broke up. And I remember calling him one day and saying, you know, oh my gosh, like everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. Do you know a good lawyer? He was like, yeah, and we should probably go get drinks. And so we just, we've just been friends forever. And then after crying over our failed marriages, we just realized that we wanted to spend all our time together. Luckily here at Big Horn, we can. <laughs> we got married. I got remarried. I left in 2019 
a lot of change. We built a ginormous organization. We just hired a chap called Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg was the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'd met him previously in years before with David Cameron when we'd gone to Number 10 Downing Street with Cheryl and Mark and because we spent a lot of time talking to world leaders. They're very interested in Facebook. And he was just like really awesome. And I thought, you know what, this is probably a good time to peace out because I've left the company and my team in the hands of someone really fantastic who really gets government, society and the internet and the intersection between all of them. And I think he's doing a really, really great job. That was my time. I left. I did some consulting here and there for some other companies, but the draw of working with Cheryl continued. And so I spent a lot of time as an advisor to her and working with her foundation, uh, leanin.org, which is an organization that promotes women in leadership and gender equality. That has been incredibly rewarding. So I still dabble. And Cheryl keeps me busy with lots of other things as well. Still an exciting life. And you and Mike have been here now for how long? Two years. Tell us about how you first got to Bighorn. I think it was more Mike's dream than mine. Like he knew of Bighorn. I think it was one of those things that was, you know, on a pedestal. Like what if, what if, what if we could work hard and, you know, be able to be in this like really crazy place. So we would come down here to Palm Springs, Palm Desert area. And, you know, sometimes we'd look at houses or sometimes we'd just have a nice weekend and play golf. And so we fell in love with the area, but Mike kept taking me back here to like look at homes. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for the whole like community thing. Like maybe we should just like get a small house somewhere. But he really pushed. One day when we were here, we had a great round of golf with Mike Rainier. We went to see this house in the morning and it was like really nice. And then we were like, okay, we're going to go back in the evening. And it was all lit up. And the whole place, the house, all the homes around it, the clubhouse. I mean, just seeing this place at night, I was like, that's it. We're buying this house. We have to live here. There was something really magical about it. And everyone was so nice. We thought, yeah, this is this is something we want to be part of. And you play golf? I do terribly. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I've heard about you, Martin. <laughs> I'm glad that you're enjoying it. I'm glad you guys are here. Mike has joined us in some of our golf games, and he's a a real pleasure too. But it's really nice to have you both here. Thank you. I'm I'm really grateful. And, you know, I'm grateful for a husband um, who is a good golfer, who has pushed me to think about places like this, has brought us here. But I'm also grateful for a man who, when he met you, and you were talking to him about his story, will turn around to you and say, you know what, I'm not the story, you should meet my wife. That he did, that he did. Is it hard for you to turn off and come to a place like Bighorn and just relax and enjoy yourself? No. Great. That's <laughs> not great. at all. That's great. Not at all. I really, I mean, I think when you leave the the things I've left behind, you really, you go through that sort of breakup period where you're processing the fact that you're not going to do this anymore. And I really was ready to not do it anymore. It was exa- It was so exhausting. And I just got fed up being yelled at by the New York Times. I wanted to do something different. And you know what? The energy here 
and the amount of stuff to do. I mean, I honestly can't keep my calendar. <laughs> like, it's, I don't know how I manage to run teams of hundreds of people across the globe. I like literally don't know what time pickleball starts. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, who were the people that have had the greatest impact on your life? Well, my dad, I think we talked a little bit about that. He died in 2008, right after I joined Facebook. Obviously, just, you know, a, a looming figure um, who finally came to terms with the with what I did for a living and was very proud. And when he died, he had this laminated article from the South China Morning Post. He was still in Hong Kong. And I was quoted in it. And I think it was probably from like when I was at Google, but I think it reminded him that I had of what I did and he was very proud. So that I think was something. He was very, obviously, really instrumental. And obviously, I've worked with such incredible people. But I will always, always point to Sheryl Sandberg, because of her friendship, and her, um, her way, the way she pushed me, and the way she pushes women. And this sort of sideline conversation I had with her when I joined Facebook, she said, here's your offer. I was like, that sounds great. She was like, no, it doesn't sound great. She said, if you were a man, you would be negotiating the hell out of this right now. So let's pretend you and I negotiated. I'm going to go back and tell them that you asked for 50% more stock. And I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. She was like, no, you're not getting the point. Even in those conversations, she was teaching me how to be a leader and how to show up and also how to teach the women coming behind me about all of the things that come very naturally to men in leadership and less naturally to women. I mean, I don't know if you know, this is kind of a random stat that always pops into my head, but nearly 50% of girls, like in their young, in their early stages at 14, 15, they diminish themselves because they're afraid of seeming bossy. So they don't lead. They shy away from taking leadership positions because it's not fitting for women. So this is starting really, really early. And that's why you don't have women in senior leadership positions. It's why it's so hard to find a great woman, you know, on the, you know, for a board seat because there just aren't any, right? The pipeline starts at 13, 14. So she's been really both um, personally a champion, but also someone who's taught me a lot about what I can continue to bring to the, you know, the conversation about gender equality. And I'm really grateful for that. And she really is an iconic figure. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, she's even a really fun part. person. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, I've had the pleasure of meeting lots of really fascinating world leaders and, and other people. But sometimes it's the people that are sort of, you know, along the way, the sort of the glue that are holding things together, peers and people that I've worked with who are just too many and, and no one would know. But I think if you really pursue your career in a learning mindset, then you learn from everybody. And there isn't really just one or two that you can point to. And I certainly think that that has been something that's been a benefit for me. What do you look for in people that work for you and with you? I have constantly looked for people who are able to embrace this concept of real talk. It was something I was really known for, both at Google and at Facebook, which is this like radical honesty about everything is to drive everybody mad. But you've got to be able to speak truth to power. 
And I think that's why I was successful because I was just like balls out. You know, here's what I'm going to say. Here's the, here's the bad news. Here's what we're going to have to do. Mark, our product is a tool for the Myanmar government in their genocide against the Rohingya. That's a true story. We are going to have to do something about that. It's very hard to kind of explain why you need to point company resources to something like this. But you've got to be able to do it. You can't be like, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't notice this whole Myanmar thing. And we, as a group in the communications team and the group that I built really valued that. And that was both in terms of how we were going to communicate to the rest of the organization and the outside world, but also to each other. And so I hired people who could tell me that I was doing something dumb. Like, don't do that. That's stupid. Got to be able to listen to them. You got to be able to take it. Ego aside. How would you define leadership? It's a really great question. The first thing that springs to mind about leadership is that companies or any organization today, I think we're going through a real inflection point and a real change because we've got these new generations coming into the workplace that value certain types of leadership, almost soft leadership um, in different ways. So if you think about the conversation that's happening around mental health, I mean, when I joined the workforce, no one gave about my mental health. As a company, you have to today. That is something that organizations are going to have to find the flexibility to be able to deal with for the workforce joining and for the workforce that they want to build. I think about leadership in terms of the most important skill is the adaptability. You can't have one style. You've got to like look across and good leaders will understand that this person needs this, this team needs this. And being able to have that agility and that flexibility and style will be what ultimately builds great teams with fortitude and respect and a winning mentality, I think. It's sort of a soft leadership in a way, but I definitely think that the difference between the sort of wartime general and peacetime general is really coming into the conversation now. You can't always be at war. I think that adaptability is the most important because circumstances changed, as we've already talked in the podcast. Things are changing so fast right now. To hold on to hard and fast ideals sometimes just doesn't work. In hiring today, if you were back at Facebook or you were anyplace else, it seems to me that that hiring practice, the people that are applying for jobs, it's different today. Maybe some of it had to do with COVID and the fact that we work now not in the office. And how do you think that changes how you hire and how you treat employees? Well, I think remote work is super interesting because... I think there's some huge benefits that you can get out of this because we were forced to work remotely. We proved we could do it, but companies just didn't want to before. And I think about all the times that I built teams and then made people move across the country or from country to country, or no, you can't, our headquarters is in Singapore. So you have to move from Hong Kong and go and live in Singapore. Those kinds of conversations you don't have to have anymore. And I think there's some real benefits to remote work, including the fact that it's incredibly empowering if you want to hire, for example, more people with disabilities, because now they can get to work. Huge benefits for diversity. And it turns out that a lot of underrepresented minorities really prefer remote work, especially in corporate 
organizations. But I do think that there's things that you lose, some of the high touch, some of the ideation and all that kind of stuff. So I think we're on this journey to sort of figure out how we can make remote work work for us. And I think that, you know, companies that really can embrace that as part of their as part of their structure and make that bugger feature will continue to do really well. I do think we are at just a huge inflection point work-wise. And that means that leaders have to be more adaptable. I think there's a real change in the way people are approaching work-life balance. I mean, people joke that millennials and Gen Z don't really want to work. (laughs) I don't think that's true, but it is really interesting about the fact that they have a balance that I've just spent an hour describing to you that I did not have. We're going to have to really sort of figure out how we blend this new workforce style together. And hopefully it'll work out really well. I think there's also some really interesting companies out there doing great things for uh, remote work. A friend of mine just got a a job at a company called Deal, D-E-E-L, and they specialize in helping companies who want to hire remote workers all over the world in managing payroll and taxation and all of that kind of back office stuff for like dozens of countries. So so if I want to hire a graphic designer in Adelaide, Australia, I can do that. I don't have to worry about their like superannuation or like, do I have the same benefits, the benefits I'm offering, you know, it's all done for you. And that's how you harness a global workforce. I'm pretty excited about that. I think there's, there's some really interesting technology that could come out of it. When you were at Google at the start, isn't there some benefit also from people being together, especially in a creative sense, that you bounce ideas? I guess you can still do it remotely, obviously. Wasn't that part of the energy that existed in a place like Google is people being together at times or often? Yes and no. So the interesting thing about technology is that there's, there is an energy in terms of the pace, but engineers who build the tools and build the products, they are individuals who sit very quietly and are not necessarily in big groups. They did work in small teams and they would come together. I mean, Google really pioneered, I think, this sort of small team environment. So you'd get like three or four people and they would just like work on one thing and just finish it. And they would often think of their own projects and be like, okay, let's build this and then we'll see if people like it. And then they, and that's, that's how ideation happened. But um, I think for particularly for people building in tech, it's less important about being together. The touch points are important, but the actual work takes place in front of a computer and you can do that from anywhere. Last question. I ask everyone the same thing. What would you tell the 20-year-old you today as advice? Well, it's very easy to say, just keep going, right? Just keep going because that's what I would have needed was not necessarily advice that would have changed my path or trajectory. It would just been the encouragement to keep doing and make the choices that I did. When you're a young person and you're early in your career and you're starting to take risks and think about what if and maybe this, sometimes it just, it takes a lot of courage to follow a path that perhaps not as common or has more risk. I mean, I think a lot of people here at Bighorn know that is that sometimes you have to be your own cheerleader you have to give yourself your own encouragement but 
if I had had more encouragement at 20 and in those early years, I think I would have really welcomed that. We all need our own hype team. And that would have been really cool. And I think just being able to sort of feel confident in the choices I was making and that you had the support of others is really cool. And I think it's something we can all give our children and the and the young people who may work in our organization. And selfishly, I would say that's also particularly true of women. As a 20-year-old woman, I did not have a mother who was asking me when I was going to get married or when I was going to have children. And so perhaps that played a role in me thinking career career first. But it was wonderful to have that choice and to not have that pressure and to just feel like I couldn't go and do anything. But I definitely think we can, as a society, still tend to think of women as as in the home and men in, in the office. And I would, 20 years old, I was really trying to rewrite a little bit of that. And I would have, I would have loved someone cheering for me all the way. Debbie, thank you so much for being here today. Really honored that you would take the time to do this and share your life and your thoughts. It is empowering to people that listen to these podcasts because they share them with their friends, their kids, their grandkids. And the stuff that you've talked about today is really impactful and can have a real impact on on people. So thank you so much. And I'm really glad you and Mike are here at Bighorn. Oh, we couldn't be happier. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me and about this crazy life. being able to reflect on it has been, you know, a huge pleasure. And if it resonates with people, then I'm really, really happy. And I'm just really grateful for your time too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie, for being here today and showing that the new members of our community have amazing stories to share with us and are becoming really positive additions to our community. And thanks to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens and Corliss Estate Wine for their ongoing support. We will be presenting another story of interesting people and their extraordinary stories on the Bighorn Podcast soon. Thanks for listening.